0: That's slash fifteen to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March thirty first. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com.
2: Ever heard of a popcorn driven robot? This week on Meet 3, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech.
0: We're interested in building swarms of many cheap small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible.
3: We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real.
2: We cover tech by sea.
0: We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business.
2: And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere.
3: So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or for media consumption at all. It's really, it's it's how the robots decided that they were going to wait human interaction.
2: Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and 3. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: If your food is grown in water, can it still have terroir? Let's find out on this episode of Tech Bites. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world. About a million listens a month. And today, they're tuning in to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, we have a really great conversation between a hydroponic farmer and a Nordic chef. And we are going to get to the bottom of How Local is Local?, Can you have terroir if you grow in water? And some of the interesting culinary questions that the future of farming brings up. Here in studio today to talk about that, we have Rob, who is the CEO and founder of a company called Farm One. Rob, thank you for joining us.
4: Good morning, Jennifer, great to be here.
3: And with him, we have the two star Michelin chef of Aterra New York City. Ronnie Emborg, thank you for coming.
5: Thank you for inviting me.
3: I'm sure this is early morning for a chef who works a very, very different schedule.
5: No, it's it's not. When you have two kids, you're up early.
3: Oh, okay, so this is late. This is the second morning shift then. (laughs) So we will, before we get to our terroir and hydroponic conversations, ask the question we always ask at the beginning of every episode of Tech Bytes. What's your favorite app right now? And to go to that, we have... In the Mission Control booth, David Tattashore, Heritage Radio's studio manager and our engineer. David, how Hello. are you this morning?
6: Long time to see. How are you?
3: I know. Well, you still can't see me because it's radio.
6: Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> I, in fact, we've never seen each other.
3: I know. I can't. I can see all the uh, the control panels and the wires, but I actually can't see you through the glass.
6: Yeah, we've only ever heard each other's voices.
3: I know. It's funny. It's like a weird social yeah. media relationship. Mm-hmm. You got an app for us today? Yeah, Something I use new? this
6: I used this app a couple weeks ago when the Phillies were in town playing the Mets. Uh, I'm from Philly originally, and I wanted to go catch a couple games. And I used this app Game Time that my friend told me about. It's just like a um, like a ticketing app. And I guess the way it works is, you know, unsold tickets go on here for discounted prices. And uh, you can get at the last minute a, a great seat for, you know, 10 bucks. So, yeah, I used that and went to two games a couple weeks ago. It was great.
3: So game time,
6: game time, yeah, and I think it's more than just sporting events too. It's it seems like it's all kinds of things. But
3: so are these legit tickets from the promoter or entity or theater or stadium, or is this clearinghouse for any kind of tickets? Like, is this resale tickets?
6: No, it's not like it's not um,
3: like StubHub. Yeah, has no, resale it's not like a StubHub or? type
6: thing where you're buying from somebody else um you're I'm always from worried about. That,
3: i'm always worried about it being a scam and having it be you know counterfeit tickets
6: yeah no this seems legit so it works <laughs> it, you got worked, real tickets
3: so. from the stadium yeah mm-hmm. nice for 10 bucks
6: um the the first pair was like 10 or i think 12 after all the fees and then um yeah yeah it was around it was like between between 10 and 20
3: were they good seats
6: they were great yeah
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Every and seat o- in
6: City Field is pretty good, I have to, I have to admit.
3: <laughs> you are on an Android. Yes. So we know that it's on Android and we assume it's on iOS also.
6: I think it is because my friend who told me about it, I'm pretty sure has an iPhone.
3: Okay, so game time. Cheap tickets It's game on game time, the fly. Baby. All right. I'll look into that maybe. Could be fun. Rob, do you have a app that you use a lot right now?
4: Well I'm gonna be really sort of businessy and relevant. Well you're business. an
3: entrepreneur. A lot of the entrepreneurs are very businessy and production
4: oriented with yeah. their app tech. Well just thinking about our farm, we, we use these sensors all around the farm which measure temperature and humidity and they're these nice little um, widgets that are about the size if you remember like the iPod nano when it existed. So really like an inch square. And so you can put these devices around, and then there's an app called Sensor Push, and then you can track the humidity or temperature in anywhere around. So that's that's quite a nice app that I look at every day, uh, and see some charts. And yeah, it's kind of geeky, but uh, that's well, what it's I super
3: use. Super specific. Very. Which specific. is kind of the beauty of the technology in the app world. Yeah, yeah. The very first app that we talked about on this show in 2015, when we first started doing the apps, it was show number four was there's an app called is the L train fucked (laughs) and it's the it's the icon is the L train logo and you open it up and it says is the L train fucked and it either says yep or nope and that's it and that's all it does.
4: That's going to be an interesting app next year and the year after. Exactly. The, yeah.
3: It was uh, created by an art director at an ad agency, and he pulls the real-time feed from the MTA to sort of, you know, just track the, the problems and everything. So I wonder if it's just going to go. Well, the L train will still be running, just not connecting Brooklyn to Manhattan.
6: Yeah.
3: I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get here next year. I think that I'll might to be the definition of fucked, yeah. <laughs> so. I might, I, my Tech bites might be, turn into an all-phone-in show. <laughs> Ronnie, do you That's have a... That's what I think. That's potential, no? All produced. (laughs) All produced packages. Do you have an app that you like right now that you use every day?
5: I don't use it every day, but I think the app that I use most in the moment is uh, MyWord Mm -hmm. uh, that I use for CrossFit to keep track of my score and my weights. It's not that cook-related, but uh, it helps me to develop and... See that everything is possible. Also, when I work with my staff, that you know we can always be better or perform better or work better together or see new opportunities.
3: Well, cooking is actually an endurance sport if you think about it. I mean, you're on your feet anywhere from 12 to you know 15, 16 hours a day. It's high paced. Um, you have to think about your nutrition and when you get to eat because you can't eat all the time and what you're eating and, and all of that stuff. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, certainly anything that's connected to, you know, fitness and endurance is definitely applicable <laughs> in the kitchen.
5: Yeah, I, I want everybody there to be happy uh, and and that way they're also performing better.
3: Yeah, happy people tend to do better Yeah, just in life generally.
5: But that's not all the cases in all the kitchen.
3: True. And actually, I, I... I Would have to say that I don't often hear chefs talk about ways of making the staff happy. Efficient, yes. Effective, yes. Maybe not necessarily happy, but that's good. That's great. Um, And you have an open kitchen also, so it's extra important and a part of the guest experience for your staff to be happy and and pleasant because I would assume that the the emotional state of your staff is a significant piece of the dining experience at Aterra.
5: It is. We also get a great feedback on that when they can see that we are standing there, we are calm, and we're having fun uh, with each other and talking to their guests, and, and everybody smiling. So,
6: yeah.
3: Yeah, it definitely adds a different layer that most kitchens don't have either. Usually you're behind, like, the door and the wall, and no one can see you. Yeah. <laughs> so we have... Um, Rob and Ronnie here today to talk about their two businesses that really interconnect and we'll start with Rob. He's a uh, serial tech entrepreneur is what I'll call him and he is attacking the idea of indoor vertical hydroponic LED farming um, from a very tech startup perspective, which is interesting, which is a different take from the people who come from a food world or from a traditional um, ag farming world. He started Farm One in 2016. They started with an R&D, a small R&D farm in the Institute for Culinary Education, and eventually moved into a larger space in Tribeca underneath Aterra, the restaurant. So the interesting thing, a couple interesting things to note about this is that they are completely um, b- B2B. They grow and supply restaurants only, which is very specific. Um, And they pretty much grow to order what chefs and restaurants are interested in purchasing. So um, it's not exactly a futures market, but when you're growing things for customers, then it it takes a little bit of the uncertainty out of the equation. Um, I I would be curious to know, Rob, just in terms of uh, from just a shopping for real estate point of view, how you connected to the Atera building just generally and, and why Tribeca, New York City, which... A basement is definitely less expensive than ground floor retail, but it's still way more expensive than Bushwick or New Jersey or sure. anywhere else where you just would have a dark warehouse space.
4: Yeah, well, I, I think the answer to that kind of goes back to the beginning of why I started the company. And, and the more I looked at this space, what I thought would be an interesting business. and so. When I started Farm One, I really wanted to grow rare, unusual ingredients, and I wanted to grow them year-round. And these were the kind of things like um, like nepotella we grow, which is a Tuscan herb, which you can't really find very often in New York, and it's hard to get hold of, and it only grows part of the year. And I, I wanted to grow interesting stuff like that. And the more I looked at it financially and as a proposition for chefs, the more I felt like, well, if we, the closer we can be to chefs, the better relationship we can we have with them and um, the easier our business kind of gets from a logistics point of view. So if we're right in the middle of Manhattan or in a very busy urban area, we can deliver by bike and by subway as opposed to having a truck and cold storage and all these kind of other transport costs. And so I thought it'd be kind of appealing if we could build small farms right in the middle of the city rather than larger farms outside of the city. And so I was really looking for kind of small spaces like basements, you know, places that were maybe underutilized, um, and maybe we could get good deals on to build farms. And so, uh, yeah, go on.
3: So you're amortizing an elevated Manhattan real estate price by decreasing the transportation and storage and some of those other things that someone in an outer borough would have
4: yeah absolutely and then you get these other advantages as well so our Tribeca farm anyone can visit it you know chefs can visit we have tourists as well who come by and the farm is very transparent you can literally see it through a window as opposed to it being in a random warehouse somewhere and so that you know forces us or by default makes us a nice farm you know we don't use pesticides like as ronnie was saying it's kind of like having an open kitchen you know people can see how we work uh we think that's exciting for farming because so much of our food is produced thousands of miles away we don't know how it was produced and so bringing that into the city and seeing it i think is really exciting and you can only really do that if you're in the middle of a city
3: do you think that it is critical for people to be able to see farm one firsthand just because hydroponic led farming is not something most people encounter or could even visualize i mean i think if we said oh yeah i'm growing herbs on a farm you would imagine you know kind of open fields soil sun you know that kind of thing i think most people would have either an actual farm experience or be able to really readily visualize what that is but when you say hydroponic LED farming, I, I don't know that people do. Does that help your business in terms of people understanding it or accepting it or making it less sci-fi?
4: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we grow a very visual product. It's normally the last thing a chef puts on the plate and the first thing a customer sees. And we grow it in this kind of visually compelling way. So if, you, if you're if you listening to this, I would encourage you to like look up a photo of Farm One. And you can kind of see those LED lights twinkling above. You can see this huge variety of plants on different stacked layers. um, And it's very different to an outdoor farm or, you know, the the traditional conception we have of farms now is like growing huge fields of wheat and things like that. This is a farm which is very small, it's underground, um, and it's growing a huge diversity of product. Uh, It's very different. So we love people coming to experience it. We love chefs bringing their teams as well, you know, bringing younger cooks who maybe haven't seen some of these things growing or never even picked something fresh off a plant. Uh, We'd love people to experience it. It's it's really great.
3: So if you are listening and want to take a look at Farm One while we're on the show right now, it is farm.one. And all of their social media is at Farm One F A R M O N E for Instagram and at F A R M D O T O N E on Twitter and Facebook. So, how did you connect to the Terra Space?
4: Yeah, so we. Start- that
3: seems a rather you know, lucky stroke of opportunity.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, luck favors the prepared, I guess. So (laughs) we were able to get initially the space at ICE, which was kind of a prototype for us. So trying to figure out, can this thing work, you know? And we managed to get a couple of customers working with us directly from that space. And Ronnie at Atero was one of the first customers um, in about September 2016, who said, hey, this is interesting. And Ronnie said, oh, you know, we have a little space in our Uh, building in Tribeca and I kind of thought he meant like a little closet or something like that Uh, but when we actually went down there and explored there was quite a bit of space that we could turn into farming space and so um, really, it was through that customer relationship um, and Ronnie's kind of excitement about what we were doing that we were able to, to come in and propose something to them. And I think there's, you know, there's obviously some really nice um, kind of benefits to both of us. You know, we can have access to them and their team, and working with them is, has been an amazing experience. Uh, but I think also for them, you know, having a farm just across the hallway is, is pretty exciting and cool.
3: So Ronnie, you have been in the U.S. at Atera since 2015? Yeah. And you have a very, you're from Denmark and you have a very seasonal product driven menu and cooking style. H- how did you discover the hydroponic LED farm?
5: Um, I always, I don't know exactly when I Mar- uh, saw it the first time, I've seen it a couple of times. Um, and I love to work with herbs in the kitchen, not just to put on the plate, but also to infuse, like, a cucumber juice with lemon verbena. We do a lot of temperings, uh, pairings on the menu where we use herbs in it, where we infuse it, or make salt out of it. So I always had that great, interesting in, in herbs, uh, part of the kitchen. Um, you know. Then we got some from the market, we got some from other small farmers and it was difficult to get the amount that we need Then just from one supplier or two suppliers. Um, and then every time people came in and asked me, oh, are you interested in buying these herbs? And yeah, I, c- I can look into it. Um, and yeah, that was how I met Rob. And then um, it was actually our old locker room that we used. And then a storage space that was we didn't really use that was turned into this beautiful garden today. Um, so we were lucky, lucky with that.
3: So how has the accessibility of having this garden right next to you um, had an impact in the cooking that you do.
5: Uh, first of all, it's just a big impact that you work together with other people that have a big passion for what they are doing, and, and that can be different things that inspires you the way that they are working, operating. But also this that you're in New York City, it's like being at home in a Nordic country. You're coming down every day, you see this big green garden that you know that makes you feel like you want to cook something great today. And then you can go in, you can taste different herbs. Or if you're working on a dish that I'm working on right now, it's with uh, pork cheeks and corn, and then what kind of herbs will go good with that. uh, You try different things. So, I mean, it's easy to access, and it's a great product. It's fresh, it's picked, and then we can serve it straight away.
3: Moments before. Yeah. It doesn't get much fresher than that. So, Rob, how long does it take you to... Um, actually deliver a a ready product from the point in time when Ronnie says oh you know I'm thinking about doing this idea I have this dish I'm going to do with pork cheeks and corn and I need what to go with it. Uh, How long does it take you to get that up and running and deliver it back to him?
4: Well, Ronnie's really lucky because he can see what yes. everyone else is getting. And so, <laughs> that that you know, goes without saying. So he can walk <laughs> around and say... He's in a great say,
3: position.
4: You know, because we have... I mean, I guess we serve sort of 35 different restaurants out of that space now. So he can go around. And he can say, oh, I can see uh, Maria is getting this. Or I can see 11 ah. Madison Park is getting that, you know. so, so um, Sh- Buds are yeah. very popular this
3: spring.
4: <laughs> well, I, <laughs> it's, it's more like he's just got this you know, edible catalog in front of him, you know? So um, that being said, so, so we're often growing things to order. Most of the time we're growing things to order. Um, Ronnie's lucky because he can sort of get first access to things. So sometimes we don't have to grow things out specifically for them. It's already growing. Um, but, you know, if it's something like nasturtium that Ronnie mentioned, that might be uh, four or five weeks um, from, you know, the first order until that that full-size plant is grown out. So if we're growing something specially, uh, it might be a few weeks, kind of lead time, and then it it'll, it'll normally stay on someone's menu for a few weeks or a few months, uh, depending on the on the sequence. Yeah.
3: So the seasonality now for these ingredients is just basically um, the season of when you want something.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's still the season. What what vegetables that's coming? What kind of meat I think that fits for the season, and then I will use the herbs if I'm using herbs for it. I try not to use herbs in eats course I try to use in some of them and you know so there's a different uh, through the menu so it is still a seasonal and then I use the herbs that I think goes good with these dishes that I put on the menu
3: I think you know traditionally in in most cooking you know we do have fresh herbs I mean I think fresh basil comes to mind or fresh dill and sort of those fresh kitchen garden herbs but I do think for the majority of people and even for some chefs The spice rack, the idea of the spice rack and having herbs available all year round, all the time because they've been dried and are accessible and kind of shelf stable in your pantry. Do you have a little bit of a different um, perspective maybe on herbs just because of, you know, that idea of, you know, I think everybody grows up cooking at home first and then even in restaurants you have a spice cabinet of, you know, spices and there are some beautiful, you know, dried spices now that I don't know that I necessarily think about herbs and spices as having seasonality.
5: Um,
3: because they've always been there.
5: They've always been there. Uh, but I mean, if, if you're in the summer, you will cook more fresh. And then if you're going into winter, it will be a little bit more heavy, maybe a little bit more spicy, a little bit more horseradish, a little bit more um, watergrass. Uh, where in the summer I'll maybe be using a lot more lemon herbs and lemon thyme, lemon ribbonna and salt flowers. Um, I don't use that many dried uh, spices. Um, kitchen is really light and fresh and so I used you know horse I use like dill foils and to give it the herbs and the spices that way.
3: Well, we are going to take a quick break and find out who our sponsor is for this show. Do you know all the Heritage Radio shows are sponsored? That's because we're a 501c3 nonprofit and we keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of amazing companies like this one. Stay with us.
1: KORIN's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corincom Hey,
0: this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at three, I know to be here in studio but I also get the the privilege of meeting such amazing people artists artisans within the industry get to learn a new factoid a, a new way of life from these wonderful people and I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network you could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. Well, if you're just
3: joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. Are you a food tech entrepreneur? Do you have an amazing software platform that you want restaurants to know about? Get in touch with us. We are very interactive. You can find us on social media at TechBytesHRN. You can send us an email, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We would love to hear from you. Even if it's a suggestion for a show or your favorite app, or maybe you want to underwrite the fall season of TechBytes, get in touch. Today... Our influencers and innovators are a very interesting combination. We have Rob Lang, who is the founder and CEO of a hydroponic LED underground farm called Farm One. And a two-star Michelin chef, Ronnie Emborg from Atera NYC, which is next door to the farm. So you have a very nice kind of symbiotic relationship, the farm and the chef. One thing that is so um, important when we talk about food from, I think, an historical point of view, from what we eat today, the idea of terroir and where your food comes from and the flavor that the soil gives to the ingredients, the atmosphere, the environment, the tradition of growing something a specific way in a specific part of the world, uh, terroir for wine, cheese, uh, heritage breed meats, like at Heritage Foods USA. How does something grown in a basement in water fit into the conversation of terroir? I'm going to go first to Ronnie, because he perhaps has a little bit more of of a broad point of view as a chef. And coming from a place, you know, the Danish tradition is very much about terroir, about what is grown locally in a very close proximity to where you're cooking.
5: Yeah, and that's where we are lucky with farm one. It's really local. It's just... Next door. Yeah, next door. Um, The big difference is uh, if it's grown indoor, (coughs) the stamps of all the herbs are really delicate. They're not like really woody or chewy because you're not having all that wind that blow them one way and then the other way. So I've... All the herbs and the leaves are really delicate and soft with strong flavors. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing for me that you can use eat the whole thing, even the root if if you're washing them. And the flavor there, there's different flavors and different herbs that you're having. And but I think in general the the flavors are amazing in both places. Um, the flowers, I mean. You can get a tons of flowers from indoor farming that's beautiful, that doesn't have any wind blowing on them or water. So that's one of the big, great things about indoor farming. Um, yeah:
3: So you don't I mean aside from the fact that the plants themselves are more delicate because they don't have to struggle against the elements. Um, in terms of the quality and the flavor, you think it's just as good, if not better.
5: I, th- I think it's great products, both of them, but it, <clears throat> Rob is growing something that you c- I haven't seen before, uh, an Epitelli, for example. And if I go out and look for that wild, I will, I will not find it. So, I mean, that's, that's the best flavor I have so far. Um, so, it depends on what, what kind of product it is. And then again, we have the season all year round. Um, so, the soul flowers, if I use them from the wild, I will have them in a short period. But now I can have them for months and all year round.
3: So the terroir question, I mean, obviously it's hyper-local. So certainly Farm One is extremely local farming. Do you think it has a terroir?
5: Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it has. Um,
3: Conceptually, but not literally, perhaps?
5: Yeah, the flavors are there. It's a great product, so yeah.
3: So Rob... Is this a question that you get asked frequently or part of the debate of, you know, modern tech farming?
4: Yeah, I get asked it all the time. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of visitors to our farm and they're, they're often, first of all, really blown away how powerful the tastes are. And I think that, um, you know, our concept of terroir, sometimes it's theoretical, you know, so we sort of hear about it. Very and much so. It, you know. Um, and so it's like putting that into a very precise language, it's very, very difficult. Um, I think that when we've had people come and visit who are, for instance, fragrance makers or, you know, people who taste multiple different food, different types of the same food for a living, so who, who are trained to do that very, very pre- precise measurement.
3: Professional palates.
4: Yeah, exactly. Um, in addition to chefs, a lot of people tell us we have, um, say, a neutral or a pure um taste. And so it's not like something grown in an extremely clay soil, it's not like something grown in a particular uh part of France or something. It's it's kind of the pure taste of the plant, which is great. I mean, I love that. You know, I love the idea that we are producing pure flavor that is the true definition of that plant. Um, you know, we do a lot when it comes to the nutrition for our plants that is way beyond just providing the basic nutrients it's possible to run a hydroponic farm and just give chemical fertilizers to the plants and you'll have plants that look healthy and grow really fast and and they'll taste okay but you won't really get complexity of flavor you won't get um, things that really blow people away same
3: as in the outdoor farming world you can grow things chemically and like you know and just a way that they maybe look great, but don't really taste like anything.
4: Right, right. And so over the past couple of years, we've really focused on how do we provide a basically organic nutrient mix to these plants, uh, which consists of biodigested plant material, there's beneficial enzymes, there's beneficial bacteria, fungi, there's all kinds of like extra sort of organic additives that we add, which ends up being this sort of murky tea colored liquid that goes in there. Um, but it's way more similar to growing something in soil in terms of all the access to those nutrients that they're getting instead of just a, a basic fertilizer mix. And, and so we think you know, that's giving the plants the best taste out there. Um, and then you know, combine that with the fact that they're fresh picked so Ronnie can just walk in there, pick a flower. Um, that, you know, I think it goes beyond the idea that, oh, if you grew this plant in California, it might have a better taste from some particular soil. I think I think that access to the, the fresh plant and the fact that it's got these great nutrients um, is giving it amazing flavor.
3: Perhaps it also depends on what the product is. You know, the microgreens that we're talking about, it's a product that is consumed in the very, very early stages of growth. They're microgreens, they're tiny little baby things that are, you know, crunchy and have lots of flavor because they haven't become big plants yet. But I think if you talk about something like wine, Mm -hmm. you know, much of the conversation about terroir, I think, you know, circles around wine, where the elements of the soil contribute to the flavor profile of the grape contributes to the flavor profile of the wine.
4: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and I think I think terroir, like if you look at it as a whole, it's about soil content, it's about weather, it's about the conditions in which, like the day, the type of weather on the day it's harvested, and then how it's stored, and there's so much around that. Um, You know, my parents used to make olive oil, and they had an olive farm, and and some of the best years were when the trees were the most stressed but it's also years when it's hot and you know even the storage of those olives as they're on the way to the bottler you know that's that's something in itself so so I definitely think that conversation is is sort of interesting um but like freshness in terms of these very young plants is a is a huge thing and how you grow uh is a huge thing
3: so but it sounds like all indoor hydroponic farming is not created equal in terms of the medium that you're using to grow the plants, and that if each farm has its own uh, profile of what kind of water or substrate they're using, I, I suppose perhaps that is your terroir from one point of view.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I completely believe that over the next few years, we're going to really start to understand oh, okay, indoor farming not all indoor farms are the same. And you'll see big, big, big commercial facilities growing salad greens. And, and their aim is to have the fastest possible growth cycle because that makes them more money. Um, their aim is for absolute consistency. Um, and their aim is for something that is probably not exceptional in terms of flavor, but just looks good, stores well. Um, so those priorities are going to be completely different to a farm like us where it's all about flavor. You know, the chefs that we've managed to bring on board they don't want to have something unless it tastes great, it looks great, um, and it works well with their dishes. So, so those farm types are going to be very different.
3: Well, also consistency is very important, especially for a restaurant like Atera. I mean, having a two-star Michelin rating is not just about creating excellent food; it's about replicating that excellent food exactly the same way every single night. It's consistency is also a key part of of being a, a restaurant of your caliber. Does that make a difference also to you, that the product is extremely consistent?
5: Yeah, it needs to be consistent, and then, of course, you, you will change the dishes if you cannot get a good product. But with, the, with all the farming and the herbs, um, I also look at it like with vegetables. You know, you can get good vegetables, but if you cannot get them delivered on the same day, it's not the same quality. The same... In Denmark, all the farmers are just outside the city and you can call and then later on the day you will have a celery you just pick out of the earth. where Everything is edible, everything is fresh and you go down to the supermarket and you have organic uh, celery but you've been there for a week, it's not the same product. And That's the same with the herbs, when you get them delivered on the day they are picked, just a couple minutes or an hour, it's a great product.
3: Very, very lucky. Mm. <laughs> so. Rob, it sounds like your space, though, the former locker room storage space of Atera, are are you outgrowing it? Are you at scale already? I mean, you you have, you know, you're growing about, what, 200 or so different types of varieties at any one time. I would assume that, you know, you probably are pretty close to, um, you know, the maximum output of what you can do. What's your, the big question for any? startup entrepreneurs, what's your model for scale?
4: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so we've been in that space for about a year. Uh, we still have a little bit of capacity there, so we're taking on some new customers still. Uh, but definitely in our sites, we can see, okay, that's that space is gonna be full. Um, and so our plan really is to build more farms. And they may be in New York City, but they may be in other cities around the US and eventually around the world. Um, and so this model is to build very high quality farms right in the middle of the cities, right next to chefs, um, and to expand by building multiple locations. But using exactly the same software that we've built, exactly the same process, exactly the same seeds, nutrients, everything. So that, um, you know, I'll I'll use a very basic example. You know, if you buy a Big Mac in Singapore, it's going to taste the same as the Big Mac in Memphis. Uh, We feel like we've got a higher quality product than that. Uh, But that consistency, uh, we'd like to be able to achieve that around the world so that chefs um, can be kind of as lucky as Ronnie and, you know, have this stuff in in their backyard, wherever they may be.
3: Have other chefs approached you to open across the hall from their kitchen once they've sort of seen the setup at Atera?
4: Um, We've had similar kinds of inquiries, yeah. And definitely there's been a lot of excitement from different uh, places around the world. Um, You know, there's a lot of cities that have an even more difficult time getting good produce as as compared to new york so if you look at a city like hong kong for instance they're often shipping product from the netherlands or from even south africa um and so if you imagine that uh at the very best you're getting something that's two days old uh and it's been on a plane so there's very many cities around the world that would be you know really really excited to have something like this i think and we'd be excited to be there
3: Ronnie, have you asked him to grow anything specific or brought seeds back from a trip or had, you know, friends from Denmark send you something and ask him if he can try and grow it?
5: I know, I know what he's thinking. Um, And I
3: asked the question because my, uh, my husband's a chef and he had a farmer he was working with years ago in San Francisco and he had his father send him um, laurel leaves and seeds from their property in Provence. And they came in a giant um, yellow French La Poste box. <laughs> and we opened it up, and it was a linen pillowcase stuffed. It looked like a pillow with the leaves and the seeds. And then he gave it to his farmer and said, can you grow this for me? Wow. And he tried to grow it, and, and they wound up growing it. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'm sure it was not like USDA-friendly or any <laughs> import-export things. Yeah. but have. In addition to just requests for specific things, can a chef give you something or seeds or how how does it work?
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, Ronnie could speak to this a little bit. We definitely, uh, when we started, we were growing about 10 different varieties and now we've grown to date we've grown about 500 different types most of that is chef driven most of that is people like ronnie saying hey i used to be able to get this and i can't remember the name but it's green and then it has a weird flavor. you know and so we try to track that stuff down and sometimes there is stuff we just can't do as well because if if it's like a tree or something it's not going to work you know for us or if it's a fruit it's going to be difficult but but there is definitely a range of of things that we've done based on on chef requests.
3: What's been the most challenging? Um, well, what was the most like challenging, crazy request that you got that you were so satisfied when you made it happen?
4: I mean, I think definitely getting some of the flowers to work has been really, really good. So, so we have different varieties of mint, for instance, which have beautiful flowers, and it's something that when we started, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to get those consistently. Some of the sweet uh, Thai basil flowers are beautiful, and. Um, so those flowering varieties have been really, really satisfying, I think. Um, even nasturtium flowers, you know, nasturtium flowers, if grown outdoors, they're pretty sort of available, but you really have to stress the plant to get them. So if you're growing a plant in a nice environment, you may not ever get the flowers. And so it's like this learning these techniques to really stress those, those plants has, has yielded some, some good results.
3: So interesting. You know, I'm thinking about all of the different organizations where they have collectives of heirloom seeds for different types of things. Have you tapped into any of those networks to see if you can grow some heirloom greens and vegetables? Herpes. Yeah, I mean,
4: the definition of heirloom is one of those things that's sort of out there and not closely defined. Definitely, a lot of the stuff that we grow, I would call it an heirloom variety. So there's there's varieties of sorrel and and uh, hyssop and and these kinds of things. Uh, but yeah, we love those kind of collections. And so we, when we meet people who do have those kind of things, we're very excited to plant those. But I think I I think there's loads more stuff out there. And as we get more mature as a company and have more R and D space. It's going to be so exciting to just find seeds from all over the world and and even cuttings from places and there's there's so much out there and that's that's what kind of excites me about this is that you know big corporations spend millions of dollars trying to invent new flavors and that kind of thing when there's already an amazing variety of stuff out there and so if we can capture and grow some of that that's so exciting.
3: That is very exciting. Make something come back, bring it back. Yeah. Um. Yep. And that's absolutely right. Although I think that when they're developing new flavors and things like that, they're based around, you know, convenience and, you yeah. know, the <laughs> the current contemporary palate. I think one of the most probably the the most common one that people would all recognize is the Honeycrisp apple was absolutely something developed for the American palate. They like apples that are crispy, that are really sweet and juicy and that color and They're more expensive because they're a a creation.
4: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: So interesting. So if you want to take a tour of Farm One or find out more about it or maybe even become an investor and own a piece of it, go to farm.one. You can find them on Instagram at Farm One or on Twitter and Facebook at F-A-R-M-D-O-T-O-N-E. If you want to, you know, it would probably make, if you're visiting New York City and you want to have a really interesting experience, you could sign up for the farm visit and then make a reservation and have dinner at Atera. That's A-T-E-R-A-N-Y-C dot com. You can find them on Instagram and Twitter at Atera NYC. Or if you want to follow Ronnie and find out what the life of a chef in New York is like, you can follow him at Ronnie Emborg, E-M-B-O-R-G. If you want to follow us, we're at Tech Bytes HRN. If you want to listen to us every week, set your alarm for 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Thursday. If you want to subscribe and take us with you, you can go to iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, subscribe, leave a five-star review. If you can't live without us, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart, give us a donation, maybe what you spent on your bowl of salad yesterday. If you select Tech Bites for your donation, I will send you something special along with my undying love. I'm Jennifer Leuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes.
5: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.